One contemporary said of Handel, he seems a little mad. And you have to, I have to say, you do really wonder, just in one, just one year, he writes, at astonishing speed, a trio of operatic masterpieces. Rodolinda, Tamilano, and Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, of course, is the first of that trio. It was given its first performance in February 1724, and the opera was an immediate success. Handel revived it with changes in 1725, 1730, and 1732, and it was also performed not only in London, but also in Paris, Hamburg, and Brunswick. Um, and it's only really in the 19th century that the opera falls out of the repertoire. The roles of Caesar and Cleopatra were created by the celebrated castrato Senesino and the much-admired soprano Francesca Cazzoni. And Handel, always mindful of writing the score round his stars, gives them a total of eight arias and two accompanied recitatives. The libretto for the piece was adapted from Handel's usual collaborator, Nicola Francesco Heim, who based it upon an original text that has already been set to music by Giacomo Francesco Bazzani. In Heim's version of this early life of the old serpent of the Nile, Caesar has arrived in Egypt to defeat his Roman rival Pompey. Egypt is ruled by a brother and a sister, Ptolemy and Cleopatra. Ptolemy, hoping to please the Roman general, delivers the head of the dead Pompey to Caesar in a plastic bag in tonight's production. Um, Caesar is appalled by such uncivilised brutality and Pompey's wife Cornelia, who's with Caesar, and her son Sesto, who's a daughter in this production, not a son, vow to be avenged on Ptolemy. Ptolemy must be killed, must be removed. That revenge comes at the end of the evening after Cleopatra has made Caesar fall in love with her when she disguises herself as one of Cleopatra's ladies, Lydia, uh, and with her and, uh, and, and also the other conspirators acting against the wicked Ptolemy. So the question often arises whether this is Caesar or Cleopatra's opera. That's a moot, moot point, I think. Whoever it belongs to, the score is packed with Handel at his most winning and seductive. And no wonder an anonymous poet of the age wrote in uh, Gentleman's Magazine, Handel's harmony affects the soul to soothe by sweetness or by force control. And with like sounds as tune the rolling spheres, so tunes the mind that every sense has ears. When jaundice, jealousy, and carping care, or tyrant pride, or homicide despair, the soul as on a rack in torture keep, these monsters Handel's music lulls to sleep. Well, we have a trio of guests tonight to explore Handel's music that lulls to sleep and raises passions too in Julius Caesar. James Lang, who covers the role of Julius Caesar and is actually singing in tonight's production as Nireno. Murray Hipkin, a member of the Eno's music staff, who's also the assistant conductor on Julius Caesar. And they're going to perform music from the opera in a moment. Our third guest is Michael Keegan Dolan, who's directed and choreographed this new production of Handel's Opera. He's no stranger to English National Opera. He choreographed The Rite of Spring here in 2009 and also worked on Ariadante, Manon and Alcina. He is, of course, the artistic director of the fabulous Beast Company. Will you please welcome Michael Keegan Dolan? Michael, when you were asked if you'd like to work on Julius Caesar, what was it about the opera that you liked? Um, when I was asked, I didn't know the opera that well, to be honest. Um, so I said to John Barry, give me some time with this. Uh, so I went away and listened to the music, and as you described, I became enchanted by its beauty and its, uh, 
moving nature. It's very moving music, and it's profoundly moving. Um, I knew the opera world very well uh, from being a choreographer for many directors like David Alden, Laura Lapage, Villa Deloid, David McVicker, and so forth and so on. Mm. And I had reservations <laughs> about stepping into the breach. Um, but it was Handel's genius that uh, swung it for, for me. Was there also something about the, the narrative structure of the opera that you liked? Yes. I liked the... Uh, well, liked perhaps is a bit uh, 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 inaccurate. I mean, it's dark. These characters are not uh, playing. <laughs> it starts off with a very, as you described, with a very gory and bloody opening. And the characters are driven by these desires for vengeance, for love, for death. Um, uh, and I like that. Uh, God forgive me, but I, I find that very interesting. And more, what's more interesting about it is the way it, is, it is, uh, sits within this beautiful music. And it's the darkness and the beauty and how they play around one another, how they dance. But there's also comedy here. Yes. It's it also is. very funny at moments. Yes. I mean, Handel can't resist, you know, <laughs> both musically and in terms of the I, I think it is funny, but it's not that funny. There are moments, but... <laughs> thank you, thank you. There are funny moments, uh, but there are not... When you, when you really look at it, there are not that many. I mean, I think the, funny, the, uh, the funniest section for me is in, is in Act 2, when where Lydia is pretending, or Cleopatra is pretending to be Lydia in order to en enchant uh, Caesar and so forth. Mm. But really, it's quite, it's quite a tragedy in many ways. Mm. These, the, these characters are, are quite, are quite sad. They're sad. And so many of the arias are associated with regret or loss <laughs> or absence. I mean, you know, the, of course, there are others, but there is this overwhelming sense, I think, of, of, some, of something gone, something lost in the world in this piece. Um, I don't, uh, what, what I feel is that mostly the, the singers are singing to external entities that are unseen. They're singing to gods, zephyrs, winds, kindly winds. They're invoking things, the furies. Uh, they're talking to dead people. To Pompey gets talked to uh, in his spiritual, spirit form by his daughter, by Caesar, by his ex-wife. Um, they're, they're nearly always connecting with otherworldly forces. They're very rarely talking to another character in the piece. There are only two duets in the whole piece. <laughs> and one of them is a joint kind of... Uh, dirge or grieving for a lost past uh, between Cornelia and Sesto. The only duet that where two people really sing to one another is, set, uh, is at the very, very end, when Caesar and Cleopatra finally become united. So there's a kind of a, it's definitely a theme of yearning for something, that they, something, people wanting something they don't have. The, a fashionable contemporary phrase might be only connect, that these people are, in a sense, isolated. And the very structure of this continuous yes. sense of ours yes. means that they have no cohesion, they don't interrelate socially. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And uh, there's only, what, two and a half choruses, one at the beginning, one at the end, and a very, very short one in the middle. Death to the Roman invader, kill him, kill him, kill him. <laughs> I, it's unfair, but I can't resist picking up something you said in a, in a I thought, very revealing. Why is it unfair? It makes me nervous. It makes me nervous. <laughs> uh, you said that at the start of an aria, the person singing it is in one state, but by the time they finish it, they're in another state. Yes. That means that you obviously feel quite clearly that, that there's a psychological development within each of these areas. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather, I would describe it more, more uh, an energetic development. Psychological can be reductive because maybe it, it only talks about the psyche, the mind. Uh, you could be physically transformed as well. You can go from a state of great tension to one of great relaxation. And music has that 
implicit power, no? Or vice versa, you can start off being very relaxed and by the end of an aria, feel like you're going to jump off a building. Um, it was Christian said that. We, 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 I think all great theater, theater is only about energy and energetic exchanges between, like now, I'm talking to you, but I'm ta I'm, we're, we're, we're communing. There's an exchange happening here. Uh, uh, it's only about that. Um, and and through, these, through these arias, an energetic exchange happens. The singer sings, the viewer listens. The singer is changed by the singing. If the singer pays attention to what they're saying, they cannot other, be but changed. And, and so will the, the listener or viewer, in my view. It's transformative, this music. It's magical music. It's godly. And presumably those changes change in each time the piece is performed. Yes. Because there's a different audience uh, you know, and the circumstances are different. So yes. there's a sense of, of, of wonderful impermanence constructed into the piece itself in yes. a kind of way. Yes. Well, that's the tragedy of being human, isn't it? The, the, the terrible impermanence of it all, the transient nature of it all. It's, that's why it's not a comedy. It's in many ways deeply tragic, but it can't be tragic for three and a half hours. So Handel, Handel knew that, I guess. He gave us, gives us a few breaks. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder whether audiences in 1724, and certainly through the, the next ten years that the piece was so popular, would have actually wanted to read the pieces about a moral lesson about power and the consequences of power. Do you think that's fair? Uh, I think it's not, it's not bad. It's, uh, I, think, um, I think what Tantle was saying was that even these, these profoundly powerful people, the richest people in the world, the most gifted, the most powerful people in the world, are still ultimately destroyed by their desires for things for people, for power, for love. Um, and you know, Caesar didn't have a happy ending. A few years later, he was dead. Then Cleopatra, not many years later, was also dead. Uh, Cornelia, I believe, fared better in, in reality. Uh, yeah, so I think we're, we're all connected. Whether we're poor, rich, or middle class, we're all driven by desires that drive us crazy. And it's about uh, not surrendering to those desires. That's a very contemporary thought, too, isn't it, in the way we live now? But we'll leave that, because we'll come back and talk a bit about what you've actually done with the production. Anyway, right. Michael, thank you very much. You stay with us um, okay. as we move to, to our, our second... I'll move my seat. Absolutely. I feel like that microphone's <laughs> going to jump into my throat. That's very close. We're going to have some music next. Um, we're joined by Murray Hipkin, who, as I said, is a member of the English National Music Staff, and by the countertenor James Lang, who sings Nereno in tonight's production, but is covering the role of Julius Caesar in this production. Would you please welcome Murray and James. <laughs> James, tell us what you're going to sing first for us. I'm going to sing um, some Caesar, obviously, um, and it is his triumphant entry into Egypt having defeated Pompey. Uh, kneel in Egypt, uh, kneel in tribute, fair land of Egypt, you know. Oh, 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 oh,
and coffee, chips deck with palm leaves. Need in tribute land of Egypt, deck with palm your master's will. Deck with palm your master's Murray, thank you both very much. James, um, do you think that the Caesar, as you see him, is more ruled by his heart than his head? Is there a constant tension in the way he thinks about the world? I think Caesar's a rather complicated man. Um, and I think he's, he's... I think he spent so long fighting that I'm not entirely sure he knows what love is until he's confronted with it. And it's such a vision, this... Well, Lydia, in this case, he's mistaken. Um, that uh, that he's completely overwhelmed, um, and in some ways, it it really confuses him. He doesn't quite know how to deal with it. Um, but I think, I, in terms of his sort of his brain, he's obviously very, very tactical. He knows exactly. You know, he plans very far ahead, um, and I think he uh, he's completely off offset by. Um, especially Lydia coming out as Cleopatra, he's completely. What do I do? What do I do? You're, my heart has let me down. I've never had to, you know, fail in trust of anything, and here I am myself. I've, I've failed myself. Um, so uh, yeah, he's, he's quite complicated. It's a wonderful moment of theatre, isn't it? That Handel relishes that kind of <laughs> sudden turn in which he realizes, you know, the, the local girl he thinks he's fallen for isn't actually the girl at all. Exactly. Yeah, very much so. Do you, do you think, in a sense, when he first sees Cleopatra, I'm just you say that you, he, this is a man who perhaps has been fighting wars, who's conquered Gaul, divided into three parts, all the usual sort. Mm -hmm. Do you think at the point when he sees her, he actually falls in love with Lydia, or is he simply bewitched by this sudden vision of femininity, the opposite of what he is, deeply masculine? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think uh, it happens at a part in the opera where he is um, he's at his almost at his weakest he's contemplating um, life itself um, we are you know man is born from clay and ends in ends in mere dust and he's in a very fragile place um, and then Lydia appears and um, it's just like I say when you're at your weakest um, you are hit that much harder um, and I think that's I think that's what happens if you look at the screen behind me, you can see images from the production which may give you some sense of, 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 of the issues that we're talking about and things we're talking about. Um, Murray, um, this is a score in which one ravishing melody follows another, uh, each one sort of taking you further along, isn't it? Mm, Extraordinary. Absolutely, yes. Um, in this version we're doing tonight, we have um, 26 arias, of which um, 23 of them are da capo arias, which were the convention of the day, as I'm sure some of you know, were, were that a, a there was an exposition and then a middle section in which there'd be some kind of emotional change and then a repeat of the first section, whereas um, Michael said earlier that there is some development in, in energy or in determination or if it's a grieving aria, for example, maybe further into that. 
Um, and in the repeat of the first section, the singers um, would be free to embellish the Handel's melody. And, and Christian's been and I've been working with the the cast to to come up with some very. I hope you'll find very beautiful and very flashy variations <laughs> on that. Um, so 23 da capo arias. Then uh, they were always in the convention of the time exit arias. So the the character would always sing those and then go. It's not quite always the case in this in this production, but that that was what the, how how it worked. And then there are also three shorter ariosos, which are um, sometimes accompanied just by the continuo group of players, the bass and the harpsichords and the oboe, sometimes by the full orchestra. And th and they would usually be entrance arias, but they don't repeat. That's that's the difference there. And as Michael said, there are a couple of duets in um, Julius Caesar. Um, the first one of which is, is really little more than an aria for two people, if you see what I mean. But you'll, it will all make sense when you see it. And then there are three accompanied restitutes where, um, in, in most of the arias, the, although, there is, as we said, there is development, there's not very much moving on of action during the arias as a rule. Um, but there are also three restitutes that are accompanied by the orchestra, restitive being... Um, the, the, all the dialogue scenes that link everything, if they're just accompanied by harpsichord and cello, um, we call them secco, which means dry. Um, but there are also some recitatives accompanied by the orchestra, in which the orchestra is, sun, is, is used in a much more illustrative way. So you might hear the sounds of the armies coming or, some, or the zephyrs or whatever. Um, and I just thought it might be interesting to, to tell you that, that I mean, all the conventional themes that you'd expect to find in, in hand, any Handel opera are there. Um, the vengeance aria in this particular piece, um, as you've already heard, it's a big theme of the piece. And, and I counted at least five vengeance arias, possibly six, <laughs> depending, on, depending on how you define them. Various people in various states of um, everyone wants satisfaction. Vengeance. But the, the, for me, the, the, the ones that are, are most striking in this piece are the arias which are, could be described as laments or grief arias, because um, we have this one character, Cornelia, who within the first mm. three minutes is widowed. And, at, and, and it's a very, very early point to have a turning point in the piece, but it is like three minutes in. And if you look at her, she has three grieving arias and, and the duet with um, her son-stroke-daughter. Um, and it's, it's just very, very interesting, because you'd think, oh, that's a bit boring, isn't it? Every time she comes on, she just moans the whole time. But the way, the way that Handel takes us through the stages of a grieving, which, of course, we've got books about now, but I don't suppose they did then. Um, the first one is a, is a wonderful, wonderful, full outpouring of, of, of grief within the first few moments of, of losing her husband. And it's accompanied with full, full strings and flute for, for, for colour. And then her second one is a much more formal and slightly archaic um, um, number. And it, this is an entry aria, so it's not, it's not one of the repeated ones that we were talking about. And that's when she's considering, contemplating her husband's tomb, for example, and that, and that is much more formal. The third one is the, the Siciliano, which is the duet, the beautiful duet that closes Act One, which is about consolation. And then in Act Two, she has another one, which um, I think sort of, I don't know whether Handel assume we might need a bit of a change. So it's not, the orchestra doesn't accompany this one, it's just the harpsichord and um, theorbo and cello. And it's really about the sort of, you know, the never ending cycle of, you know, this is never, you know, I'm going to. This is, this is never going to change. And it's, it's where it's all kind of reached an equilibrium a little, I think, and you're just locked into this tunnel. So it's an extraordinary picture for me of, of, of those different stages of grieving. So 
you could you think, oh, 26 hours, oh gosh, but every single one's different. Everyone takes takes us somewhere different. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, um, it's music that is designed to make us feel something. So in that sense, it's extraordinarily manip manipulative. So allow yourself to be manipulated. <laughs> <laughs> James, you're actually singing tonight, Nireno. I am. Is, is Nireno more than simply a good guy who does a lot to get things sorted out? Uh, I think it depends on the production. Um, in our production, we don't quite know what he is, really. He, does he have his own agenda? Is there something going on? He's always loitering mm. in some sort of corner, making sure he knows what's going on. Um, you know, he's, he's, his character, he's obviously high up in the court. He's, you know, a servant to both Cleopatra and Ptolemy. Um, he's more friendly with Cleopatra, um, you would say even friendly. Uh, you but know, he's a eunuch. Is he? <laughs> in our production? <laughs> well, I didn't tell you. Yeah, he's, uh, he's got nowhere. Uh... Oh, I've got to change my whole... Um, <laughs> um, but uh, it's... He's, he's an interesting character for, for, for the little that he has to do in, in terms of um, singing. Um, he's, you know, it's, he still needs a process of an arc through the piece and, and, uh, and thoughts given to that. Putting Nirena together with, with, with Caesar, I mean, what, what are the challenges of singing Handel? What are, what, vocally, what are the challenges you have to face? Oh, it's um, a good question. I think, I think Murray, when he was talking about... Um, you know, when you when you when you do a role, and you have music, or you're you're doing three arias, grief arias. How do you make them different? And it's it's not just the music; it's got to be thought. It's got to be your your internal struggles. And um, and I think it's that depth of um, of of where you go with that. I think. Um, you know, it'd be easy to do things in, in the same way, but to do things, to f discover new nuances of grief um, or, or happiness or joy or triumph, um, I think that's, that's the really hard thing, keeping it fresh, you know, um, reviving things as, as they come through. And, um, you know, what I love about Handel, music in general, is that, um, that it does change every time. Um, you know, you you react differently off your off your colleagues, and um, you know, one one night you might just feel slightly more bitter at one point, and and you feed into that. And I like the the dynamic of of how it all changes. Well, you you said how the music can be illustrative: the zephyrs, the winds. Mm -hmm. We hear them in the pit. Does does Handel also use uh, the music to characterise uh, his principal characters and the smaller ones, maybe too? Yes, I think he does to an extent. I mean, as Michael said, it's not the, the comedy in this piece isn't really terribly funny. But but Ptolemy is arguably kind of classic <laughs> comic villain. Now you can judge for yourself in this production later. And I think his music is by far the quirkiest, um, with with huge extremes in it. And um, you've sung Ptolemy, haven't you, I have. James? And it's just bonkers, isn't it? He is bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it perfectly reflects the sort of the slightly psychotic edge that he has um, you never quite know where you stand where you stand with him and, and that's that's when you're singing him as well as you know watching him um, you know for all the characters involved so, um, so the music itself is kind of full of full of possible traps very much so yeah. very much so mm -hmm. um, not quite like Bach uh, <laughs> who does take you into crazy places uh, but but yeah it, it, you can never quite 
relax. Well, in fact, I'm not, it's not whether you want to um, actually relax. I think I think you just you go on this journey, and every time you 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 leave the, the station, you're somewhere new and um, discovering new things about about everything, your character and the music. James, you're going to sing again. Murray's going to play. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Uh, we're going to sing. So um, Caesar has found out that Lydia is Cleopatra. He's been chased away by Ptolemy's guards. He's jumped out of a window into the harbour. Um, presumed dead to all, he washes up on the shore. Uh, and this is his arrival, I suppose.
Scattered weapons and corpses that stain the sands with blood. Ah, oh, then we fought in vain. Now all is lost. Fly to me, Zephyrs, fly. Relieve my desolation. Inspire with consolation. Inspire with consolation. And thank Murray Hipkin. Thank you both very much. Stay with us. Stay with us. Um, Michael, um, there's no direct dance in Julius Caesar in the sense that, the, 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 that you've put dance all the way through. What, what was your decision? How did this decision arise? Um, <laughs> John Berry asked me to direct Julius Caesar, as I said. Um, I'm a choreographer by nature, first disposition in situation of stress, dance. <laughs> um, but I read some essays on the work and a lot of people with uh, great experience and uh, knowledge of this piece of work were very clear about the fact that there was no dance in Julius Caesar. Um, and there's great prejudice, uh, as you know. Um, I've heard all sorts of derogatory descriptions of people jumping around and what I, read, what I read one good one yesterday was a uh, poor man's pants people. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, but it's, it's very interesting because it exposes a, a hatred of the body, a hatred of the feminine, a hatred of the creative, a hatred of the uncontrollable. Um, so I had no attachment to the, to, for the, 
to the idea of there being choreography or dance in this production. In fact, it would probably work extremely well without any. So I, but what I did do was I organized myself four weeks in a studio with 10 dancers and one of the uh, music, music staff here, Nicholas, and we explored the score. And we waited to see, it was like going fishing, mm. <laughs> to see what uh, fish would come along. And we, we were very respectful of Mr. Handel. We, we put a picture of Mr. Handel in the room and we lit a candle every day and we said, okay, we're gonna explore this territory and we'll see what gives. The dances that appeared were simple and beautiful and Nicholas, who was playing the piano, got very excited and began to say things like, I'm hearing the music in a different way now. Uh, this is really exciting. So when Christian arrived, uh, Christian Kernan on day one, we showed him the material I had worked on and he became very animated. Uh, and we decided to keep most of it. As we worked through the production, we took away stuff, we took away anything we thought that was pulling on the integrity of the music or pulling on the theater of the evening, we took away. So there was no agenda or no attachment uh, other than in a situation of stress, I dance. Uh, but but the, the, the pleasure, uh, having seen it at the, at the dress rehearsal, the pleasure is surely that you created uh, an essentially relatively simple, straightforward dance language, but one that has a sort of formal properties that relate precisely to the music. I mean, there's a kind of formality about the dance. Well, we were trying, uh, we were, I say we because I'm a creative person and creative people always feel mildly schizophrenic in that you're uh, always feeling like you're being influenced by external forces. Uh, I, I, um, I, it was really important that the dance reflected the music. So the music, in, in essence, is quite simple, structurally, A, B, A. Uh, in terms of the, the, the language they use, it's one or two lines per aria that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. Uh, so repetition was clearly going to be a part of the language, simplicity, beauty, musicality. Uh, why, how can you make complicated choreographic movements to this music? It just simply wouldn't work in my mind. So the, so the, 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 the movements chosen are... are Purely, uh, they, they all came out of the music. However, I would warn you, you should try doing some of these movements. They look simple, <laughs> but the thing about simple things, as you know, minimalism are simple things in life. To do simple things well, you need to be very, very uh, uh, virtuoso, as Mr. Lang here just demonstrated. Uh, <laughs> simplicity is the most technically challenging thing of all. Michael, there are literally, I suppose, hundreds of different versions of Egypt. There is the Roman version of Egypt, yes. the Egyptian version the of Egypt. Irish there's, there's, yeah, well, <laughs> the Irish version. There's Napoleon's Egypt, and there's Art Deco Egypt. Yes. Which of the Egypts have you tried to create? Uh, I haven't tried to create anything in this. I, don't, uh, I hate the idea of trying to create. Uh, I, 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 read a, I read an interesting book about Cleopatra. Uh, by Stacey, Stacey Schiff, uh, clearly a, a feminist, uh, a woman who was into, into women. <laughs> and I, I responded to that. Theatre is not real. You know, nothing's real on stage. And the idea of trying to create something that looks real is ridiculous. Uh, so you, you, you behave in a more, like a poet. You, you, you evoke things to do with Egypt, a colour, a texture, a temperature. Um, as the scale, some things are big or small, uh, um, but no, there was no. It, it was it was really came from the world of imagination in response to what was in the score. I, I tried not to bring anything extra. Handel has done a great job. Uh, there's a lot there. Listen, we played the music all the time during the design process. To the uh, 
<laughs> the designer and the costume designer found that quite difficult. But I would relentlessly put the music on and say, listen to this, listen, what's this, what's this evoking? There is a huge crocodile at yes. the beginning. There's a giraffe yes. uh, that loses its head. Uh, <laughs> there are, uh, Cleopatra's muses um, become these wonderful kind of black, sort of almost Eumenides, fake yes. figures with wings. Or furies. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, these, do these have a kind of a, a single idea behind them, these animals, or are they simply things that emerge in the process of making the piece? Well, when I, when, when I thought about Egypt, I, talk about, I thought about crocodiles. Croc the crocodiles were gods in Cleopatra's times, and they were guardians, and they were connected with death and rebirth. I guess because they ate people who went to wash their clothes down by the Nile, <laughs> people just disappeared. But they are majestic. They're also incredibly... Uh, they have no emotion. Uh, they eat you, and they eat you. <laughs> I read a book about crocodiles, uh, and I found a really, one really interesting story about a guy who was chased, not chased, because they don't move incredibly fast. He got stuck up a tree with a crocodile beneath it, and the crocodile would not move. for They won't move for weeks. They'll just wait you out. They're incredible animals. And they had to be saved by a helicopter, ultimately. So I, I did feel there was a connection between the crocodile and Caesar, in a sense, in some way. The animals are really important to me. Animals are, are, are the natural world. And how we, how we treat the natural world and how we behave in relation to nature, I think, says a lot about us as uh, energetic beings. Um, and the animals are, are definitely connected to, to Egypt. So Cleopatra allegedly brought a, a giraffe to Rome as a gift uh, to the Romans when she visited Caesar shortly after he left her in, in Egypt. And of course, the crocodile is connected with Egypt. It's a god. Uh, the women and the birds. I liked, I liked the idea of ibises. I liked the, the, the cult uh, that Cleopatra was in, in, involved with, uh, the Isis cult. Uh, often, there she's depicted with wings, uh, with a beak. Um, that's connected with the element of air and otherworldliness. So nature is really important. And is there a sense in which nature has been abused by these people? The crocodile is dead. The giraffe suffers terribly. Well, Ptolemy, Ptolemy is not a nice guy, as we as discussed. So it's Ptolemy who chops the head off the giraffe. Caesar uh, uses the crocodile in a ritualistic manner to uh, celebrate his conquering of Egypt, which for me is quite reasonable. When, when Octavius conquered Egypt finally, the coin that he minted had a picture of his face and on the back a picture of the crocodile. Um, but Cleopatra, for me, is a nature is more of a nature lover, or more natural, or more. She, her guardians in the piece are these bird-like women. Uh, her relationship with the crocodile is different. She cuts the belly open and discovers these eggs inside. Um, so, so nature is important. We must never forget nature. Your decision that Sesto should not be Breach's role, but Sesto should be yes. a woman uh, searching to revenge her father Pompey, yes. egged on by her mother Cornelia. Um, for me in a sense, rebalances this piece because it suddenly becomes about women in a men's world yeah. and the re-establishment of, 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 of women, sometimes oppressed, but searching for some kind of affirmation, searching for some kind of autonomy. Yes. Well, uh, it's all about women. It's all about women, isn't it? Everything's about women. What, what, would, what will we do without women? Um, I, I, I can't stand uh, beautiful young women pretending to be men. In operas, I really—it's a—it's a very—it's a, very, a personal thing. I'm, I just don't—I just don't get it. Uh, if you meet when you see Danielle Mack, the lady singing the role of uh, Sesto, she's incredibly feminine. She's incredibly beautiful. She's stunningly beautiful, breathtakingly beautiful. So the idea of putting her into trousers and putting a wig—and I just thought, no, I, oh, we're not going to do that here. Um, the role—the role was written written for a soprano, and she is a, a soprano. Um, and 
I also believe that women are perfectly capable of experiencing these emotions that allegedly only men experience, like, uh, like the desire to kill the person who killed your father. My sister's like that. Uh, my mother's like that. You know. So it's, a, you know, it's, it's exciting. I mean, and also, it's, it's really exciting to try new things, no? This music has endured for since 1724. Uh, so let's, tr let's see, let's, let's plow it further, let's turn it around, let's see what's hidden within it. So to try these things is exciting. I think we should ask the audience to join us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have, as always, um, speeding its way towards us at the moment, the roving microphone. If you'd like to ask any of our three guests this evening a question, if you'd like to put your hand up, catch my eye, I will wave my hand at you in return. So who would like to ask a question of any of our guests? Yes, at the back. Thank you very much. Uh, wonderful singing, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the transformational journey of singing. When you're on stage, what do you feel? Is it different? And actually, when you're singing those arias, what, what happens? Um, as in singing in front of you now? Yeah. Um, it's quite different. Um, the, uh, the Zephyr's aria is, in, this, in the production, is lying down. Um, so it's already slightly, you know, confused in my head. As You get used to, it's funny, you get used to the how you produce the sound in a particular position um, and uh, and you you have muscle memory so you come onto stage and you're you're doing an action or a, or a move and your voice knows what it's supposed to be doing at that given time um, so standing up and doing it is obviously restrictive in a um, in a physical sense um, but but then you have to go much further in the emotional sense and uh, hopefully describe everything that you you would do on stage, um, sort of through face through face and through the voice. Um, I don't know if you if I'd have to add anything more to it, but um, you'd hope that you give everything on the stage as well, of course. Um, but uh, <laughs> dig my hole. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's you have to think about it slightly more uh, about where it sits in the body. Another question. Yes. The microphone's on its way to you. Thank you. Uh, this is for anybody who doesn't mind giving away trade secrets. Um, the harpsichord, in my understanding, is a chamber instrument. So how do you fill this enormous venue with harpsichord music? You'll see microphones inside the two harpsichords we use, but I would like to reassure you but that the harpsichords, neither of them are actually amplified into the theatre. They're only amplified for the purposes of the singers on stage. So the, the speakers are very discreet and they're facing the stage. Now, sometimes when we're listening, we're aware of a little peripheral bounce back, particularly in a set like the one we've got today, uh, where there's a, a curved wall which is very resonant, very reflective. But the aim is, is never to, mic to amplify the instruments into the house. I mean, the, the, the restative harp's called. One of them is playing the restatives uh, that we discussed earlier. The other one is playing with the orchestra. The restative harp's called is, is raised on quite a high rostra, along with the theorbo, which is a lute, and the continuo cello. And this theatre just seems to work with it. I can't say more than that, really. It just sort of does. And we've had to occasionally say to the player, look, we can't hear that. Shove a bit more or shove another four foot on or something. But um, <laughs> you will see microphones, but please don't be deceived by them. 
<laughs> Another question. <coughs> yes, in the second row. Yeah. Hold on, wait till the mic. We've got others who shan't hear you. I beg your pardon. Um, how how much of the music is cut, and who decides what is left out? Now, who wants to talk about the edition? Cr Christian. Christian decides uh, pretty much. There's far few, the far less cuts here uh, in terms of arias than when Sir Nicholas McCarris conducted the production in, I think, in 79 or 80, was it? Um, he cut nearly all of Sesto's arias, but Christian was very passionate about reinstating nearly all of Sesto's arias. So Sesto has all but one of her arias back. Uh, Achilla only had one when McCarris was here. He still only has one. Noreno's nearly always gets cut. It's it's a very very long opera. Yeah, it is. Uh, Achilla was I think had three originally. Yeah, he's three originally. Um, but Noreno, his actually his aria wasn't in the original draft. So Christian he held to his guns and said, "No, we're doing the original version." <laughs> much uh, we, my shaka. We we also cut. Well, Caesar has lost an aria in Act One, and Cleopatra has lost lost an aria in Act One. Sesto has lost one aria in Act Two. Uh, and that's, I, Cornelia has all her arias. Uh, so it's, we, the main cuts are in the recit. And Christian's view on that was when, when, when Handel wrote more operas, when he got to Aria Dante, for example, he, got, he, got, he felt he got a better understanding of how the London audience responded to the work, and he reduced the recit considerably. So we, 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 we reduced the recit considerably here in, in a kind of an honouring or a copying of Aria Dante. But, but we, but also, have, we also have to be careful, Michael, don't we? Because in a sense... Murray will no doubt correct me. Because Handel rewrites and recomposes things for different sets of singers through the revivals of this, yes. there is no kind of definitive version. There is always choices for you in this yes. opera yes. about what you want to do. Yes. So it's not a question of cutting and doing something wrong. It's making a choice about what you want to do or what the available material. Well, ideally, I think we would have liked to have done it all, mm. but it's just too long. You'd be getting home at 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I mean, what, we'd finish, what, at half 11 or something. Uh, so, so, yes, but you're absolutely right. And I, I got the feeling people are good about that, that there isn't that kind of... I was nervous that people would be uh, very attached to what we cut and didn't. Christian has an essay in the programme, and it's titled, titled To Cut or Not to Cut. Uh, and it's most interesting. And invariably, you'll always cut the aria that the person you're talking to <laughs> yeah. loves most. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've probably reached the end of our allotted time. So, ladies and gentlemen, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being a splendid audience, as always. But our particular thank yous, obviously, to Michael Keegan-Dogel, James Lang and Murray Hipkey for being our guests. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>